Well, it's Family Sunday, and so kids, I want to ask you a question first. Uh, is there something that you do or some way that you look that is just like your mom or your dad? Is there something that you do or some way that you look that is just like your mom or dad? Oh, I see a hand back there. Yeah. Your hair. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah. Any others? One more taker? Yeah, Christian. What is it? You're athletic. Yeah, you and your papa are athletic. That's right. That's right. Um, for what it's worth, I'll mention, folks have said that I have the face shape of my mom, not so much my dad. I have my mom's face. I, but I do also have a goofy post-joke grin like my dad. It's exactly the same. And from somewhere, I seem to have inherited what I assume is a genetic disposition towards love handles. So I don't think you can do anything about that. That's just the way it is. There are plenty of ways that we are like the families that we come from. And I see this a lot, actually. I see it a lot in, say, my friend Ray Shaw's kid. His name is Sam. And when my boys did something, Sam responded with natural encouragement. He said, whoa, great job, bro. And that is Ray to a T. <laughs> or when I saw Brian, Kate, Brian Pate's kid, Christian, playing with my boys with like 10% of his strength because he was being so gentle with them while they were playing football, I think, yeah, that's just like Brian. We have these likenesses often, isn't that right? Kids, you may be beginning to see these things and however we feel about them, they're there. This morning, we're learning about family likeness in the family of God because we are all different and yet Jesus gathers us together and he gives us something of the same family dynamic. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, which is what happens for anyone who follows Jesus, he begins to make us look all a little bit more like Jesus. So, I would love, kids, for you to draw a picture or write a poem talking about what it would be like if Jesus became your brother and lived in your house with you. What would you do? What would that be like? I would love to see those pictures. I know Betsy, Miss Betsy would also love to see them, and she might even have a sweet treat for you if you bring it to her, okay? So that's your assignment during this time. Now, recently, my wife Hannah and I took our kids to the beach. Uh, we always try to get away to the beach around the time that our kids get out of school. And last year, we did the same thing. We went to the beach around the same time. And whenever we swam in the pool, because even though we're at the beach, our kids always wanted to be in the pool, whenever we swam in the pool, both of my boys had floaties on, these big inflatable things that keep you above the water. But I realized at one point that my oldest son, Isaiah, could actually touch the bottom of the pool in the shallow end. And so he was allowed to take off his floaties and walk around with his head just above the water like a sea lion. The next day, he was swimming in his floaties again, and then he asked if he could take off his floaties to walk around. So I did my parental duty, and I told him, okay, only if you stay in the shallow end. Little did I know that overnight they had added about six inches of water to the pool, and so when he jumped in, he went fully under, whole head, and I had to throw my things down and plunge in to rescue him out of the water. Isaiah, had my oldest boy, had been given freedom from the floaties, 
By no fault of his own, with his freedom, he found himself drowning. In our New Testament passage today, we hear about Paul, who's wrapping up this big message on freedom. And he speaks to not only what we are freed from, but also gives us a vision about what we are freed for. And then he speaks to the question, how do we participate in this newfound freedom such that we do not find ourselves drowning? So let's engage that first question first. Paul's teaching on what we are freed from. Paul, it's good to remember, Paul had great affection for the Galatian church. If we read uh, Acts chapter 14, we read about this church nursing him back to health after an almost lethal run-in with certain Jews who took issue with his message that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. The Galatians not only nursed him back to health, but they received his gospel message so thoroughly, and he loved them. Perhaps this is why Paul wrote this letter, letter to the Galatians, first. Many people assume this is his earliest letter. And so it's especially interesting to note what he says in this letter. This is him pushing the boat out on this whole letter-writing endeavor. His overarching message is freedom. As one commentator puts it, Galatians is Paul's manifesto to freedom. Paul himself says at the beginning of our passage, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is something of a summarizing verse for him. Paul begins this letter-writing career by preaching freedom with great passion. Last week, we heard from Hannah about what Paul was saying that the Galatians are freed from. By extension, what we are freed from. A little bit of a refresher, because it pertains to what we're looking at this morning. Paul says in chapter 2, A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, no one will be justified. So we're freed from the law which for Paul always refers to Jewish law, to Torah. But here, he's particularly focusing in on Jewish purity law, which kept them from eating or really doing life with other people, with other nations, with Gentiles, as they were called. In other words, the new people of God were freed from particulars of what it meant to be ethnically Jewish. And this was important because the exact opposite was what some people were trying to force on these new Gentile believers. They were saying something like, you want to follow Jesus to be truly justified? It's not enough to simply believe in him. You need to become ethnically Jewish, become circumcised, and do not eat with Gentiles. Hannah encouraged us last week that we are all full heirs of what God has to give us, no matter your race, class, or gender, if we would only believe in Jesus. If we do that, then we are all firstborn sons, which was a title that had been saved only for the Jewish people. So if you didn't get to hear it, I encourage you to go back and give it a listen. It's important to recognize this, this move that's happening, that God's invitation has gone beyond a single nation. We're given freedom from those purity laws and from distinguishing the Jewish people apart from all other people. This is why... For example, we're not beholden to avoid eating shellfish. It's why we're not beholden to practicing Jewish cleansing rituals. It's why we don't have to care about who we eat with. But have you ever wondered why faithful Christians still hold to the ethics of the Jewish law? 
There's still part of a holdover there. To put it another way, what is Paul really pushing back against when he proclaims justification by faith and not justification by works of the law? Bear with me for a moment because this gets in the weeds a little bit, but I think it's really important for understanding Paul's letter to the Galatians. From the Reformation onward, the 16th century big movement in the church, our understanding of justification by faith alone goes something like this. We cannot earn our place into God's good graces, and only through believing in Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection can we be called righteous. Now hear me say this. Everything in that statement is absolutely true, as Paul would go on in later letters to say. But most faithful Jews were never trying to simply earn their way up to God. They knew just as well as we do how imperfect we all are, how impossible of a task that is to accomplish. But we assume that a word like justification, this big 25-cent word, which is literally translated as put into right relationship, we assume a word like that is solely for the courtroom, describing somebody who's been proclaimed innocent or justified. Now, the word certainly can be. The original Greek bears that out, but that's not all it can mean. And Paul's not actually there yet in his letters that he's writing. The term can be used in so many other relational ways as well. And so we have to take cues from the context of Paul's actual letter that he writes. What is he actually speaking to here? Paul's driving illustration in this letter, if you go back and read it, and I encourage you, go back and read it. Take 20 minutes to just read the letter of Galatians whole hog. His driving illustration in this letter is when he confronts Peter for pretending like he had not already been eating with the Gentiles. He had it right, he just got scared backwards. And so the context of this letter is not a courtroom with scales and the hope of being called innocent. The context of this letter is the dinner table. Paul isn't talking about a judge's declaration. He's talking about who is sitting at God's family table. So in our letter this morning, when Paul proclaims freedom from the law, he proclaims freedom from living like a Jewish person to maintain your place in God's family. Which brings us to what we are given freedom for. It's not enough just to have an image of what we're freed from. We need a vision of what we're actually freed for. We're freed for God's diverse family table with a place kept open for anyone who would sit down. Paul reaches all the way back into Genesis chapter 12 to explain this. God made a promise to Abraham, and God said to you, Abraham, shall all in you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. All the nations. Through Abraham, before the law, before the land, God promised the reformation of his family for all people. So when God originally began constituting his people with the Hebrew people, they had to be different because they were meant to be an image to the rest of the world. The law codified this and how they lived, who they ate with, how radically progressive, uh, progressively they cared for the marginalized. There were boundaries because they were meant to be a clear image for the rest of the world. They were meant to communicate the nature of God, that he is good, loving, strong, and present. 
This is the, the new family of God that he is creating. And he's doing it as a part of restoring the whole world. This is why the relationship between God and his people is most often described in familial terms. Israel's firstborn son. This is a family that eats and feasts together. God cares for his family as tenderly as a mother cares for her nursing infant. All these familial terms. And so it makes sense that when Paul speaks about being freed from the boundaries of a particular ethnic family, it is a freedom for the fully realized family of God, which means Jew and Gentile alike are included. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise, a family made up of all nations. And this was always the plan. It's a little bit like this. I mentioned to you earlier our vacation that we took. Last year, both of our boys, they were still in floaties. This year, my youngest son, David, who's four, was ready to learn how to swim, which meant the floaties had to come off. In fact, they didn't quite make it on in the first place. On our first trip to the pool, uh, he went right for the stairs, started going down the stairs until he was fully submerged under the water, and I had to throw everything down, dive in to rescue him, make sure he didn't drown. Last year, the restrictions of the floaties actually allowed him great freedom to paddle around the pool like a little puppy. But he was so excited to get in the water and learn how to swim that this year he required freedom from the things that once gave him freedom so that he could do the thing he was always meant to do, learn how to swim. So when Paul proclaims to these early Christians freedom from these purity laws, he's saying, drop the floaties. When he proclaims freedom for a family of God, inclusive of all nations, he's saying, let's learn how to swim together. Let's learn how to be this full vision of the family of God that was promised to Abraham. Now, we are a diverse family who are put into right relationship by the faith of its individuals in the faithfulness of Jesus. Over the last few weeks, you've heard Seth preach about the new community created by the Spirit being poured out. You've heard from Hannah last week about, from the same letter to the Galatians, about how we are all equally sons and heirs in the family of God. The family of God theme in the Bible is perhaps the most overarching theme in the Bible, which is why it keeps bubbling up in this way. It's why every Sunday we gather around a meal table. It's why Paul urges us elsewhere to never neglect getting together. This is why Paul can say in verse 13 of our passage, for you were called to freedom, but through love become servants once again to one another. But Paul doesn't look at family with rose-colored lenses. He knows that family is not always easy. This is why in our passage he paints two images of the family for us, the family of the flesh and the family of the spirit. Listen to Paul's picture of the family of the flesh again. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So he's saying, I could have gone on, but he cuts it off there. This is an image of the family of the flesh. And I think it's clear to see this is no family at all. 
when Paul references the flesh, he's not referring to our physical selves, our physical desires, as if we could simply transcend our embodiment to become more holy. That's not what he's saying. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what heaven coming down to earth at the end of all things is. That's not the calling on us. Neither is Paul suggesting that desire in and of itself is a bad thing. In fact, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us to recapture our desires, to work through our desires. It's actually our desires that are shaped when God writes the law on our hearts. So desire is not a bad thing. Rather, as N.T. Wright puts it, when Paul references the flesh, it represents people or things that share the corruptibility and mortality of the world, the rebellion of the world. In other words, even though the world is being redeemed and rescued by Jesus, there are many parts of the world and how we live in it that are a sinking ship and draw us away from the good of the world and our place in it. It would be like choosing to polish the banister of the Titanic after it hit the iceberg, or like going to open up the hole that the iceberg made to let water in more quickly. More specifically, it would be like biting and devouring and consuming one another rather than serving one another in love. Division, arguing, rivalry, splitting into factions. These had absolutely begun to take place in the Galatian church. Now, what we know from history about the Galatian struggle is actually that it wasn't so much about the big things that jump off the page at us, things like drunkenness, sexual immorality, sorcery, they jump off the page at us, they would have jumped off the page to them. But that wasn't their struggle. And I think Paul includes it here to actually raise the stakes on these other destructive works of the flesh. And so Paul puts, uh, Paul puts division on par with sexual immorality. He puts rivalry on par with drunkenness. He takes these things really seriously, in other words. I was talking with somebody earlier this week about a former church context. It was intensely focused, I came to understand, on defining and re-clarifying theological truths. This is a good thing, and Paul does it all over the place, as we see. Yet, this man's description of his previous church experience was a battlefield. A battlefield cannot be the description of the church. And yet, sadly, so often it is. I've talked with so many of you about how you've been wounded on the battlefield of the church. And I hope you hear Paul's deep passion that it should not be this way. Those who make a practice of doing these things, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because it's simply not God's family dynamic. If the God of the universe was, in fact creating a new family, inviting us all into it, what are the qualities of relating that you might hope to find? Would they be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Imagine if that's what the church looked like. Imagine if the world learned something about how to be a family from how we treat each other, 
not just within this one church, but between churches, between denominations? What if we treated each other so much like family that the world couldn't help but notice and be drawn in? That's the point. But Paul adds this funny little line at the end of this list of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, against such things there is no law. This funny little colloquial phrase used all over the place at the time by Aristotle and others means something like you can't legislate these things to happen. You can't force the fruit of the Spirit. If you see a book on the shelf called My Ten-Step Plan to the Nine Fruit of the Spirit, be wary. It's not that predictable. How often also do we miss out on the fact that this is actually not a personal checklist for self-improvement? Rather, it's a glimpse through a window into God's family home and what it's like. It's a corporate reality before it's an individual one. It means you cannot grow in the fruit of the Spirit without the family of the Spirit. Now these days, we love to have our own individual sanitized experience of God. But if we hear what Paul is saying, then we must agree with Eugene Peterson, who says the Bible knows nothing of a solitary faith. For us to grow in the Spirit, we need the family of the Spirit, which is increasingly marked by the fruit of the Spirit. So then, how do we put this into practice? How do we go about doing what Paul is calling us to do, to grow into this image of the family of the Spirit of Christ? I realize that all I've told you so far is that it's something we do together, it's impossible to control, and it's going to be messy. But I hope you hear the implicit encouragement in that. Paul is not actually trying to make some kind of new law. If we make the fruit of the Spirit the new law, then we've missed the point entirely. We aren't in the family depending on how well or not we accomplish Paul's vision, which is good news because we are not going to do this perfectly. We must lean into, choose to lean into the family of the Spirit to bear its fruit and to truly call God's family home. We have to throw off the floaties to be able to swim together. But the point is not that we must know instantly how to swim perfectly, lest we drown. The point is to take God's invitation to simply get in the water because that is where he will teach us how to swim as a new family. As Paul says at the end of our passage, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. When David plunged into the water ahead of me this year, it was a little scary for me. I loved his eagerness to get in and learn how to swim, but he got out ahead of me and he jumped in the water before I was there to teach him. But the Spirit will always be there to catch us, will always be there to teach us, While my son David was learning, periodically I had him swim out to me from the steps of the pool. And I would ask him, how was that? And more than a few times he answered by saying, good, I almost wounded, but I'm okay. (laughs) Even when we feel like we might be drowning, if we live in the family of God by the Spirit, then let us walk by the Spirit, our teacher, lining up our steps with his listening for and trusting his guidance in the myriad ways that it comes. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, prone to conflict or avoidance, a brand new Christian or a veteran follower of Jesus, whoever you are, 
Diving into the family of God will come with amazing fruit. And it might feel like you're drowning at times. But let us keep in step with the Spirit as we learn to swim. Right now, we are in a convulsive moment in our culture, both outside of the family of Christ and within it, in the wake of rulings and legislation on deeply held beliefs about abortion, gun control, all kinds of things. We have fresh opportunity as a family to walk with the Spirit, to walk out the character of God's family. We cannot hope to do this without an attentive ear to the Spirit. We don't have to agree with everybody to be able to walk out the fruit of the Spirit. Unity does not mean uniformity. Whether in this moment you are more prone to triumphalism or deep anxiety, what would it look like for our discourse to be marked by the fruit of the Spirit? Love, gentleness. What if we had an extra measure of self-control right now? What would it look like for us to avoid biting, devouring, consuming one another within and outside of the church? There's no place that you will get out ahead of the Spirit. It will be uncomfortable at times. You may find yourself in deeper waters than you thought you would be in, but you will always be able to say, I almost wounded, but I'm okay. You can put the weight of God's promise to lead you in this back on his shoulders. This is his promise over us. He will produce the fruit of the Spirit in you and your community of faith more and more. So long as you stay in the pool, lean into your place in God's family, keep in step with the Spirit. Only when we learn to swim in the family of God can we experience the true thrill of freedom in Christ that we were all created for. But to learn how to swim, you got to get in the water. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.